Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Economics. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Ishwar Prasad about his book, The Future of Money, How the Digital Revolution is Transforming Currencies and Finance, from the Belknap Press of Harvard UP. This book was on the best economics books of 2021 list of both the Financial Times and The Economist. Ishwar is the Tolani Senior Professor of Trade Policy and Professor of Economics at Cornell University. In the future of money, he provides great clarity on a subject rife with confusion. Ishwar, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Caleb, it's a pleasure. Thanks for doing the interview. Of course, this was a, a really fascinating book. Um, as I said, I think that this is a subject that, you know, there's there's lots of confusion, lots of uh, bad actors, lots of good actors too. Um, and you, you really do a great job of breaking down uh, many of the, the sort of difficult to understand subjects. So before jumping into the book, the first question I'd like to ask is if you can just tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to write this book. So um, I'm a professor at Cornell, as you'd mentioned, and much of my research is focused on currencies and capital flows across countries. So trying to think about different um, currency movements, what drives the value of um, money, um, especially in relation to um, other currencies. My two previous books were about the dollar and the Chinese currency, the renminbi. Um, And as I was thinking about what is happening in the world of money, it quickly became obvious to me over the last few years that the digital transformation is really going to have a far-reaching effect in terms of um, how we think about money, how we use money in our day-to-day lives. But what I had planned to do was actually write um, a relatively slim volume about central bank uh, digital currencies. That is the notion that one day we might have a digital dollar rather than the paper currency that we're used to. But as I started thinking about these issues, it quickly became apparent to me that I could not think about central bank digital currencies without thinking about the broader changes taking place in finance due to the digital technologies. After all, most of us use digital payments rather than physical currency these days. And then, of course, I had to think about cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin, then central bank digital currencies and what it might all mean for financial markets and institutions, for central banks, and indeed for the very way that we organize society. That's why what is intended to be a slim volume became a 500-page tome. But it fits in very well with my research agenda over the years, thinking about um, money in its various forms, and especially about how central banks manage 
the money supply and things like inflation. So, yeah, in the book, you do a great job of showing how the financial system is being transformed. But I, I think before moving to that, I guess I just want to ask, you know, at a very basic level, what is the role of money in the world today and what function does it serve? Does it serve and how does our financial system facilitate the circulation of money? So money is one of the most remarkable um, innovations that um, uh, humankind has uh, um, uh, has managed to accomplish because it really allows you at one level to transfer resources across space and across time. Um, so in the past when we had um, uh, you know traders in different places, especially traders who did not know each other, it became very difficult to conduct commerce. So we had rudimentary forms of money in the form of metal coins and um, precious commodities that could be used um, to conduct exchange. Now, this really limited the scope of commerce. So the creation of paper currency and other forms of money enabled um, trade across widely disparate geographic locations. But then you can also use money um, to save up uh, for the future, or if you're an investor, to be able to borrow uh, to see your plans come to fruition and thereby create some real goods and services. You could not do that unless you had access to credit. Um, so essentially, you're borrowing against the future while savers are trying to save up um, for the future and for unpredictable events. So money has really come to play a very important role in um, modern economies um, and has also transformed society in many different ways. So these days, one can think about money as serving some very basic functions. One is as a unit of account, which means when you go into a, a store, um, you see a price of um, various objects in dollars, or if you happen to be in Europe in euros, or maybe in Japanese yen, if you happen to be in Japan. So you know exactly what the price is in terms of a unit that you're familiar with. And then money serves as a medium of exchange to be able to conduct transactions. And money also serves as a store of value uh, to be able to essentially uh, put away some money knowing that um, it can preserve uh, its value more or less into the future. So these are the fundamental functions of money right now, but it's enabled um, enormous uh, uh, changes in the way we've organized society. So in the book, you talk about how, you know, typically money is something that is issued by either governments or created by, by banks. Uh, and a case study that I think is a probably a good jumping off point to just sort of look at cryptocurrency and the transformations they talk about is Facebook's attempt in 2019 to create their own cryptocurrency. So what was Facebook's attempt uh, with creating Libra, now, now DM, and, and why did it, did it sort of fail? And sort of, what's the current status of that? And how does how is this uh, this case study kind of an example of some of the new changes that are afoot? So um, first of all, it's worth thinking about um, who really creates money. And as you've pointed out, um, the money that we are most familiar with, um, which is currency notes, is created by central banks, by and large. Um, you know, historically, it was not um, always governments or central banks that issued paper currency. Um, there was a long period um, over many centuries when there were private issuers of paper currency, even in the U.S., who competed with official issuers. But then the creation of central banks, which took place in different countries at different times, um, but mostly over the last couple of hundred years, 
decisively settled that competition in favor of um, fiat currencies issued by uh, national central banks. Now, in modern economies, when you think about the creation of credit, which actually fuels a lot of economic activity in terms of investment, in terms of, say, your ability to buy a car, to buy a house and so on, that is actually money created by commercial banks. Now, we think about commercial banks at one level as passively taking deposits and then lending it on uh, to people who want to borrow that money for whatever purpose. But it turns out that commercial banks at one level can create credit out of thin air. What prevents them from creating infinite amounts of credit, of course, is that they are commercial institutions. So they created huge amounts of credit that would drive down their profits and they need to make sure that they make reasonable loans. So that's where a lot of the money creation comes from. Now, if you think about the medium of exchange function of money that I spoke about, um, these days, you know, you can use uh, paper currency when you go into your coffee shop. You can potentially uh, use your um, uh, bank deposits using your debit card. You can use a credit card. You can use um, Apple Pay. But it turns out that um, this payment function is still not that efficient. You know, for merchants, it's still quite expensive to undertake credit card transactions because they have to pay interchange fees um, somewhere in the range of 1% to 3%, um, which is quite significant for a small business in particular. International payments are even more cumbersome because they take a long time, they're very expensive, um, and they're quite complicated, of course, because there are different currencies involved and so on. So Facebook in its, uh, or what is now called Meta, of course, um, uh, came up with this idea of, of course, trying to make the world a better place uh, by making it easier for people to have easy access to a digital payment system, both domestically and in terms of international transactions. So what Facebook, uh, what Meta wanted to do was to create effectively a payment system um, using the technology um, related to cryptocurrencies. So the idea was that each unit of this um, cryptocurrency created by um, uh, what was then Facebook would be backed up by stores of a fiat currency like the US dollars. It would maintain um, a stable value relative to the US dollar. But then Facebook would make it much easier to use this for payments and would basically give, um, I suppose, anybody with a, a Facebook account easy access to this payment system. Now, the logic behind this was that, you know, there are still many frictions in payments. You and I might be able to use Apple Pay or Google Pay on our phones, but you need to link that to a credit card or a bank account. And even in the U.S., um, there are um, millions of households that do not have easy access to a bank account or credit card. So the idea was that you would give everybody easy access to a low-cost digital payment system, make it easy to conduct domestic payments, possibly international payments. And as you can imagine, regulators got very concerned about the notion of a private corporation issuing a currency of its own, um, even though that was going to be backed up by U.S. dollars. Um, and because you might not know who was going to use this uh, um, uh, stable coin, as it's called, in what way and so on. So that project eventually got shut down because of the opposition from regulators. You uh, you just mentioned at the end uh, that, that this coin would have it would have been been a stable coin uh meaning that it would be be backed up by by fiat currency 
what what really is a stablecoin and why have stablecoins gotten so much attention recently, especially stablecoins like Tether? No, it'd be, it might be worth um, um, setting the stage for that question by thinking about what cryptocurrencies were supposed to uh, accomplish. So if you think about um, Bitcoin, the original cryptocurrency, it came up in um, 2009, um, although the um, white paper introducing it came out in early to late 2008. And the timing of Bitcoin was impeccable. Um, the white paper or the proposal of Bitcoin was issued just six weeks after the collapse of Lehman Brothers, the iconic investment banking firm, on September 15th of 2008, which basically uh, triggered the global financial crisis. And what Bitcoin promised was something remarkable, the ability to conduct transactions without having to rely on an intermediary such as um, uh, a commercial bank or a credit card company or using central bank money and to be able to do so using just our digital identities rather than even revealing real identities. So at some level, this is a remarkable accomplishment that Bitcoin um, uh, proposed and actually did deliver at one level that one can actually use Bitcoin in the manner uh, suggested. But it turns out it's not very effective at what it was supposed to be, which is a medium of exchange. Um, one of the reasons is that the Bitcoin network can directly process only a handful of transactions per second compared to hundreds of thousands of transactions per second on, say, the Visa or MasterCard network. It takes a while for transactions, uh, about 10 minutes for the average transactions to be processed on the Bitcoin network. And most importantly, the value of Bitcoin is very volatile relative to the unit of account we're all used to, which is the US dollar or whatever the uh, currency might be in whatever country you're in. And this is a problem for a medium of exchange. You know, if you go into a coffee shop one morning with a fraction of a Bitcoin that you own, and one day you could get, um, you know, a few uh, pastries and a large latte, and the next day you could get just a small cup of coffee for the same amount of Bitcoin. That would not be a very good medium of exchange. So there are different cryptocurrencies that have come up to deal with the different deficiencies of Bitcoin. And stable coins try to get around the problem of unstable value. And in a very delicious irony, uh, because after all, the whole point of Bitcoin was to get away from central bank money. The irony is that stable coins get their stable value precisely by being backed up by stores of uh, assets denominated in fiat currencies. So for instance, there are some um, stable coins right now that are backed up by um, US dollars in, in the form of currency or um, US treasury securities issued by the US government. Um, but the idea is that um, these stable coins, because they are um, in the form of digital tokens, might be more efficient ways uh, of conducting payments without having to rely on a credit card or a bank account. Um, so stable coins have stable value. They use cryptographic technology, but unlike Bitcoin, they're neither anonymous nor um, uh, do they um, get by without relying on a trusted intermediary because there is a specific company or institution that issues the stable coins, maintains its value, and conducts the transactions um, using those, uh, those coins. So 
is it right to sort of draw the connection to sort of think of a stable coin that stable coins are sort of like banks in the sense that they have reserves? Uh, and I know that a lot of stable coins say that they are backed up completely one to one. Like Tether says that one Tether is backed up by one dollar, um, though this isn't necessarily the case. Um, so, you know, I, I, that brings me sort of to, to this question just around the state status of cryptocurrency regulation, uh, which is something that you talk about a little bit in the book, which is basically like, how are regulators thinking about these coins? To what extent do, should stable coins be treated as banks and should cryptocurrencies be treated as, secu- as securities? That, um, Caleb, is indeed a raging debate in Washington right now. What exactly are stable coins? What sort of instruments are they? And therefore, who should regulate them? How should they be regulated? And so on. Now, it's worth making the distinction between fiat-backed stable coins, um, such as um, um, USD coin issued by Circle or Tether and so on, and what are called algorithmic stable coins, which are backed up ostensibly by other stable coins. Now, um, there was a um, very prominent um, algorithmic stable coin um, called uh, Terra Luna that was backed up by um, uh, cryptocurrencies. And that basically collapsed because, as you can imagine, uh, trying to ensure stable value by um, backing up one cryptocurrency with another cryptocurrency doesn't work very well. uh, And that, uh, as expected, ended badly. Um, Most of the other cryptocurrencies um, do seem to be holding up their value quite well, although there have been some questions about um, who exactly determines if, in fact, um, these stablecoin issuers are holding enough securities, are they holding the right kinds of securities, and so on. And as you pointed out, at one level, um, they are beginning to appear like banks, because after all, when you um, buy any of these stable coins, um, even though they are backed up by US dollars, in effect, um, they begin to act like bank deposits because they pay some interest. You can use them to conduct transactions. But there is an active debate about whether perhaps they should be considered as securities. Um, And another aspect is whether they are ultimately going to be uh, viewed as something like money market mutual funds, because money market mutual funds have at some level similar characteristics. Um, Every dollar that a money market mutual fund takes in is supposed to be backed up by highly liquid securities such as U.S. Treasury securities. So whether... Stable coins are ultimately going to be regulated as banks or um, as uh, security issuers or as money market mutual funds uh, remains to be determined, uh, but they certainly look like uh, um, banks or deposit-taking institutions to me. So, you know, another aspect of cryptocurrency beyond stable coins and just Bitcoin is this concept of decentralized finance and the revolutions in that cryptocurrency, people argue, are going to have cross-banking, more standardized finance. So uh, what do you see as the current state of decentralized finance and which projects uh, do you think are, uh, have have some real legitimate promise? So decentralized finance is a very alluring concept and it's worth thinking about what exactly decentralization means. Um, So one aspect is related to the decentralized architecture. Um, Now, Bitcoin is um, uh, an initial example of uh, decentralized finance or DeFi, so I'll use that uh, to talk about these concepts. So um, 
all of the Bitcoin transactions, um, every transaction ever conducted using Bitcoin, including the amounts, the uh, timestamps of those transactions, the digital identities of the transacting parties, are all maintained on public digital ledgers in multiple uh, computers around the world. About 10,000 uh, computers maintain the entire uh, record of Bitcoin transactions. Um, so um, this means that there is no single point of failure. In other words, even if a few computers got corrupted or hacked, it wouldn't affect the integrity of the system. The second aspect is decentralized validation. There is no particular um, institution or um, party that validates transactions. It happens through a process um, that involves the entire community agreeing that certain transactions are valid. And then there is decentralized governance. That is the rules of the game are not set by the government or any agency, but again, the community um, decides on these rules. So these are all very attractive propositions because at one level, it means that anybody has access to this sort of financial system. Um, you don't have to go through a bank or credit card company. All you need is access to the uh, internet. Um, second, um, you have um, uh, the ability to um, uh, to conduct these transactions in a permissionless way. That is, nobody needs to give you permission. And in many authoritarian regimes, there is also the uh, censorship-resistant aspect that is very uh, important here. So uh, government cannot block people very easily from using um, this sort of uh, financial technology. And there are many... Um, prospects of democratizing finance because now that you have developers using open source code being able to develop and create new products you don't have the traditional gatekeepers like commercial banks or investment banks who collect large fees um, who could restrict entry to high net worth or high income individuals so in principle anybody could have access to products for savings for credit for managing risk you could have developers who create you know, bespoke financial products and services tailored to very specific needs, which might not be, um, you know, cost effective for a major institution. But once you've taken away the brick and mortar element, maybe you can have developers create new products. So this is all very alluring. The problem is that this promise has not quite been accomplished yet. Rather than democratizing finance, what we've ended up in a world uh, is um, uh, a world where there is much more concentration um, of um, wealth. Many of the people who've been able to take advantage of these investment opportunities um, seem to be already quite wealthy. And um, unfortunately, there have been many um, uninformed, um, uh, unsophisticated investors who've um, not uh, had a clear idea of what sort of risk they were, they were taking on, invested in cryptocurrencies and cryptocurrency-related technologies, including some of these algorithmic stablecoins that we spoke about earlier, and lost a significant chunk of their life savings. So we seem to be moving to a world where decentralized finance is actually leading to a lot of concentration of uh, economic power, even more than before, while many of the risks fall on those who are least able to handle them. But I still still remain optimistic that decentralized finance at a minimum is forcing existing financial institutions to get a lot more efficient. Uh, we've already seen 
um, that international payments are becoming much less expensive, uh, much quicker, thanks to these new technologies. We are seeing online banks um, beginning to offer services um, at a much lower cost um, and um, also making those services accessible even to those who have very low uh, income levels or very low balances uh, on their deposits, for instance. So I think this um, has potential, but one thing that's also becoming clear is that the notion of letting the system govern itself um, may not be quite viable in the long term. Ultimately, I think government regulation, so long as it's not too intrusive, can actually benefit this financial ecosystem a great deal and allow it to really um, achieve its potential. And, you know, I think that leads sort of perfectly into, you know, the thing that you, you start the book with, which is you talk about the first sort of two of the first major government projects to bring in some of these these technologies in the form of central bank digital currencies. So, so if you could talk a little bit about the, the cases of, of Sweden and China and how their financial systems are pushing into the future and maybe even, you know, point the way towards what we might expect to see in America and in other places. Yes, yeah, central bank digital currencies or CBDCs um, are uh, inevitable. I think in every country, the reality is that uh, people are giving up the use of currency and moving towards digital forms of payment. Uh, in some countries, such as um, China uh, or Sweden, as you mentioned, uh, the use of currency is uh, plummeting to virtually uh, nothing. Um, so central banks are responding um, by introducing digital versions of their currencies. Now, the question is why exactly they are doing this. And it turns out the motives are different. In some countries, such as the Bahamas, which has issued the world's first nationwide CBDC, the objective is to increase financial inclusion, that is to give Everybody in the economy, you know, if whether you're a mom and pop shop uh, uh, running a small street corner operation or um, a very low income uh, individual, you can have easy access to this digital payment system, which has a lot of benefits relative to cash because you don't have to carry around cash, which is, uh, you know, liable to loss, theft and so on. So there are those benefits in addition to driving down costs of transactions. In a country like Sweden, um, you know, the private sector is doing a perfectly good job of providing digital payments to everybody, but um, the central bank is concerned that if the entire payments infrastructure is in the hands of the private sector, it could be vulnerable to technological or confidence issues. So the e-kroner or the digital version of the Swedish currency, the kroner, would essentially be uh, a backstop in terms of uh, uh, payments uh, infrastructure. Um, so Sweden is quite advanced in terms of its CBDC experiment, and so is China. Now, in China, there are two payment providers, Alipay and WeChat Pay, that have blanketed the economy with low-cost uh, uh, digital payments. So the question is, why even bother with the CBDC? Um, in China's case, of course, there is an element of control. I think the Chinese government is concerned about these two private payment providers basically dominating the payment space making it harder for other private payment providers to enter and compete, which might limit innovation. And of course, they've been controlling the data they get from their payment platforms, which until recently they were unwilling to share with the government. Uh, so China seems to be keen to introduce the digital yuan or digital renminbi. Um, you know, again, um, as an alternative payment mechanism and also to maintain some control of the payments infrastructure. 
Now, CBDCs have a lot of advantages. Um, you know, it's going to give um, people easy access to this digital payment system. Um, you could also have um, reductions in the use of central bank currency for nefarious purposes, you know, um, uh, drug trafficking, money laundering, and so on, because once you have digital money, it becomes harder to use for those purposes. Um, if you know um, everyone in the U.S. had essentially a CBDC digital wallet, some things like the coronavirus stimulus payments would have been a lot easier. Um, for many people who did not have bank accounts, uh, it became very difficult to get money to them because um, the government had to send out prepaid debit cards, checks, some of which got lost, damaged, and so on. So those things become much easier. But there are downsides as well. Um, you know, uh, there are concerns that if the central bank is essentially managing a payment system, it could reduce private sector payment innovation. You might end up pe having people put their money in central bank digital wallets rather than bank accounts, which could threaten the stability of the banking system. And then at a societal level, if I could buy you a cup of coffee only um, using, you know, private payments provider or a credit card or a digital central bank money, then any notion of privacy might be lost. Um, so every country that is moving forward with CBDC, I think, is really uh, thinking very hard about how to manage these risks. And it turns out that technologically, there are some ways to at least mitigate many of these risks. Um, there are ways in which you can make sure that the central bank digital currency is offered as a token, a digital token. Um, so the central bank actually doesn't directly uh, interact with customers. And those tokens are used by commercial banks and other payment providers. So you can still have private payments innovation. And there might be some ways of assuring privacy, at least for low value transactions, so that the government can make sure that the money is not used, um, digital money issued by the central bank is not used on a large scale for illicit transactions, but for small scale transactions, you might still have some privacy. In the US, um, what has happened is that um, the Federal Reserve Board, which is the US central bank, has put out a policy paper just talking about the pros and cons of CBDC um, and inviting public comments and debate and more research. Um, it has done the technical preparatory work in case um, there is broad support for a CBDC, but I think the Fed has wisely indicated that it would not move forward on a CBDC unless there is broad political and public support for a digital dollar. But Caleb, I think the reality is that in every country, we are moving towards a world where paper currency is going to become uh, increasingly anachronistic and we're going to move towards CBDCs. So, you know, obviously it's impossible to predict exactly, like you said, what that implementation would look like in part because, you know, the, the, the Fed is currently open to variety of suggestions, and I'm sure they wouldn't move forward with anything unless, you know, major banks were on board. But what, you know, would it look like, you know, me as an individual, if there was a CBDC implemented, that I would have, you know, a bank account with the, uh, with the Fed, and then I would also have a bank account with, you know, my private bank, and that in my central bank account, uh, I would just have cash and treasuries. Um, and then in my commercial bank, it would be more so for investments and for payment for, for larger payments like rent and stuff like that. Like, do you have any sense of what it might actually look like? 
the more likely outcome is that you will have a bunch of apps on your phone. So one would be a CBDC digital wallet. Um, so whatever balances you had in there would be non-interest bearing, just like cash uh, right now. Uh, and actually the digital wallet might be maintained, not necessarily by the Fed, but it could be maintained even by a commercial bank. Side by side with the commercial bank account um, that of course pays you uh, an interest rate. Um, so that would be one of the key uh, differences. And of course you might have Apple Pay, Google Pay on your machine. Uh, but one of the key aspects of a CBDC digital wallet is that it would be interoperable. In other words, if you went into a store um, that said it only accepted Visa or MasterCard or another store that it ex that accepted only Apple Pay, a CBDC digital wallet in principle uh, would allow you to uh, have access to any payment system. So that interoperability would be the key winning feature of a CBDC because if not, you might say, why do I even bother uh, with the CBDC when I can already use my bank uh, account or uh, Apple Pay to conduct any transaction? Uh, this feature of interoperability, I think, um, uh, is something that um, every country is trying to build into uh, its CBDC infrastructure. Um, but it is true that in countries like China, you know, again, the user case for a CBDC is very weak precisely because there is very, very effective payments uh, already. So one can really think about a CBDC as a backstop or as a catalyst to you know, getting the private sector to make its payment systems more efficient and also increase interoperability. So this book came out uh, last year, and obviously so much has happened in fintech and cryptocurrency and just in, in the economy in general. So is there anything that you wrote in the book that you feel that you were vindicated about, maybe certain predictions you made, or, or anything that you maybe have changed your, your mind about or feel that you maybe got wrong? So I was... Um... A little more, um, I, I think the book has held up surprisingly well, as you've uh, correctly mentioned, um, uh, over the last year, um, things uh, have changed quite a bit. In fact, I handed in the final manuscript to the publisher in February of 2021. Um, but by and large, things have moved pretty much along the lines I had indicated with um, significant progress on CBDCs, um, with the new uh, breed of cryptocurrencies that try to make up uh, for the deficiencies of Bitcoin. I had expressed skepticism about whether Bitcoin would hold its value well. And certainly we've seen um, a big run up in the price of Bitcoin since I wrote my book and then a significant fall in the price of uh, uh, Bitcoin's value. Um, one thing that uh, um, did surprise me is that I had anticipated that decentralized finance, which I had been quite optimistic about, would lead us um, towards more democratization of uh, finance, giving people easier access and so on. What I had not quite uh, anticipated, although it is a risk I do point out in the book, um, I had not quite anticipated that we might end up in this world where actually these technologies are leading to even more concentration of wealth and inequality. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, um, it seems like many of those who um, joined in the coattails of the cryptocurrency revolution now seem to have gotten stuck with a lot of risks rather than the benefits. Um, the fact that many of these new technologies are being co-opted by existing financial institutions, again, is something I um, allude to in the book, and we've seen that happen to a significant extent with existing institutions, you know, using um, Bitcoin's blockchain technology in particular to increase their own um, efficiency. 
Um, so uh, the really worrying thing to me is that um, um, we are seeing um, these new technologies not uh, deliver their promise in terms of broadening access, in terms of reducing um, uh, inequality, and it's going in exactly the opposite direction. Is there anything new that you're working on? Any new books, new research, uh, maybe on this subject or on something something new? So going back to some uh, very basic research about how um, the emergence of central bank digital currencies might affect how central banks conduct their operations, um, how um, it might affect uh, flows of capital across countries. So, for instance, these new technologies are going to make it much easier to move money um, around, not just within countries, but also across countries. This is going to have a lot of benefits for um, you know, economic migrants sending remittances back to the home countries because they will have quicker transactions, cheaper transactions. But for many emerging market countries, it's going to open up a can of worms because now if capital can move more easily across their borders, it exposes them to a lot more capital flow and exchange rate volatility. So those implications um, are things that I think we're just beginning to um, grapple with. Um, also, the implications for financial markets, um, how these new technologies might ultimately affect the range of investment opportunities we have, how we can manage our risks and so on. Um, all of those are issues that I think deserve a lot more careful thoughts. I'm working on a bunch of research projects on those uh, those areas. Well, Ishwar, that sounds like a, a you know really fertile ground for investigation. Uh, thank you so much for being guest on the New Books Network. Uh, it was great speaking with you. Uh, the book, you can find it, Future of Money. It's uh, we, we have a link to it in the show notes. I highly recommend it. It's one of the clearest uh, and best written books on the subject. So thank you so much. Thank you for saying that, Caleb. It was a really fun conversation and I really appreciate you doing the interview.